2. Thoughts of Harming Children Thou shalt not kill. Exodus 20.15 For most new mothers, the most horrible, inappropriate thought they can have is about harming their newborn baby. After all, child killers are reviled even in prison blocks housing the most hardened criminals in our society. It should come as no surprise then that the imp of the perverse delights in targeting these precise thoughts to torment these women. Earlier, you met Sally, who was plagued by bad thoughts about harming her infant daughter, but was too ashamed of these thoughts to tell her husband or her doctor about them. In fact, one of the questions Sally asked me when we met was whether I had ever heard of any other mother who had horrid thoughts like these about her own baby. She was visibly relieved when I told her that these thoughts are many times more common than most people believe. However, like Sally, most sufferers are too ashamed to tell anyone about the bad thoughts. We are only now beginning to learn how to ask the right questions about this hidden epidemic. Why do some mothers brush off occasional thoughts about harming their infant, while others are tormented and may even come to avoid taking care of their child? Apparently, if a new mother is suffering from depression, she is more vulnerable to the, the influence of the imp of the perverse. Perhaps her brain is less able to perform its normal function of filtering out bad thoughts such as these. Or possibly, the negative view of herself that accompanies depression makes her more likely to believe that these thoughts indicate that she is in fact a bad mother. Bad Thoughts and Postpartum Depression When new mothers suffer from depression, the disorder is called postpartum depression if it occurs within four weeks of a live birth. If the depression comes on later than four weeks after the birth of a child, it's simply called major depression. Thoughts of harming one's infant are so common in postpartum depression that in some accounts, this is listed as one of the defining elements of this disorder. For example, postpartum depression is a living nightmare filled with uncontrollable anxiety attacks, consuming guilt, and obsessive thinking. Mothers contemplate not only harming themselves, but also their infants. One of the first studies to carefully assess these thoughts was beginning several years ago when I received a letter from Dr. Katherine Weisner a psychiatrist at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, who specializes in treating women with mood disorders such as depression in the postpartum period, that is, soon after the birth of a child. Dr. Weisner explained in her letter that in her work with women suffering from postpartum depression, she had run across a number of women who, when asked carefully and in a supportive way, admitted to also having obsessions about harming their baby. Most of these women, she told me, were too ashamed of their thoughts to tell their husband or obstetricians about them. So, Dr. Weisner was planning to conduct a scientific study to determine just how common these bad thoughts were among women suffering from postpartum depression. She was therefore writing to ask my permission to use the self-report questionnaire of common obsessions from my book, Get in Control, Overcoming Your Obsessions and Compulsions. She reasoned that by showing women a questionnaire, including a variety of awful, aggressive, and sexual obsessions, 
they would be more likely to be honest in reporting these symptoms if they were truly present. At that time, I had seen a number of women like Sally and was becoming interested in this kind of obsessive thought. Thus, I wrote back to Dr. Weisner gladly, giving her gladly giving her permission to use my questionnaire in her study and asking her to keep me informed of its results. I was especially interested in her results because she sees patients at the Women's Mood Disorder Clinic in Cleveland, where women are not specifically coming in for treatment for obsessions or compulsions, as it is the case in the OCD clinic where I work. I thought this feature of her setting would give us a more accurate indicator of just how common these bad thoughts were. Scientific studies take time to complete carefully, so about two years passed before Dr. Weisner sent me an early draft of her paper to comment on. The study showed that bad thoughts about harming babies were far more common among women suffering from postpartum depression than I had expected. Specific examples of their obsessions are listed in Table 2. Obsessions about harming babies in postpartum depression. Putting the baby in the microwave. Drowning the baby, stabbing the baby, throwing the baby down the stairs or over a railing, images of the baby lying dead in the casket, seeing the baby's head bleeding cracked by a ceiling fan, images of a baby being eaten by sharks. How can we be certain that these thoughts were simply irrational obsessions rather than homicidal urges in the part of these women? Or as one of my patients put it, how can I be sure I'm not going to end up like Susan Smith? who drowned her children in a car? This crucial question will be explored in the following chapter. For now, however, some vital clues from Dr. Weisner's findings make it clear that the imp of the perverse was at work in causing these women their dreadful thoughts. Not only did the women in the postpartum onset group experience an elevated rate of thoughts of harming their baby, but they also reported experiencing the following thoughts. Fear of doing embarrassing things, 32%. Fear of terrible things happening, 22%. Blasphemous obsessions, 19%. Fear of something being wrong with their body, 16%. Fear of harming themselves, 11%. Fear of blurting out obscenities, 11%. Sexual obsessions, 8%. And the fear of stealing, 3%. These are clearly the thoughts of women worrying about doing the most inappropriate things at the most inappropriate time. To get a better idea of what these women told Dr. Weisner about their experience, I asked her whether the women described their bad thoughts as urges to harm their baby, or if they described worrying that they could possibly do this. The women in her study told her that they did not so much have an urge to hurt the baby, but rather the fear that they might lose control and hurt the baby. For example, one woman would worry that while cutting a tomato, she would somehow lose control of her actions and stab the baby. Another worried that she would have a lapse of consciousness and not remember poisoning her baby. Dr. Weisner's findings permit us to calculate a partial estimate of how common these bad thoughts may be. Using a conservative estimate of 10% prevalence of postpartum depression, and assuming that half of these women have aggressive obsessions, we can estimate that perhaps 5% of new mothers suffer from aggressive obsessional thoughts toward their babies. Therefore, in the United States, 
where roughly 4 million babies are born each year, 200,000 new mothers may develop disturbing obsessions about harming their newborns. Based on her experience, Dr. Wisner agrees this statement is realistic. Of course, it doesn't take into account these women who are bothered by these thoughts who do not suffer from postpartum depression. These are described later in this chapter. To make matters worse, we can assume that few of these women will tell their husbands or doctors about these thoughts, instead suffering in silence. Dr. Wisner told me, in my experience, women are very reluctant to tell anyone, even their husbands, about their obsessions. They almost never tell us their ob- they almost never tell their obstetricians because they fear being thought of as crazy. They often do not tell us directly either. Until we ask the question in a matter-of-fact way, then they often start crying and ask us, how did you know? Dr. Wisner told me about her experiences with women who become more depressed because of how they interpret their obsessions. Am I having these thoughts because I'm a bad mother? Does this mean I really did not want to have this baby? Do I have some unresolved childhood problems which may make me capable of hurting my baby? If I tell anyone about these thoughts, will my baby be taken from me? Interpretations like these are sure to worsen any postpartum depression that the new mother is already experiencing, making her even more likely to have bad thoughts about her baby. Depression after the postpartum period. Of course, the imp of the perverse does not end his siege on new mothers after the arbitrary three-month postpartum period is over. Several recent studies have described mothers' thoughts of harming their children as old as three years. Recently, Dr. Jennings and associates at the Western Psychiatric Institute and Clinic in Pittsburgh asked 100 clinically depressed women with at least one child under three years of age about obsessions that they might have of harming their children. Of these depressed mothers, 41% admitted to having such thoughts. Many of these women admitted that they were afraid of being left alone with their child, and for some, these fears left them unable to care for their child. As a comparison group, these researchers also asked 46 non-depressed mothers the same questions and found that only 7% admitted to having thoughts of harming their child. Although significantly lower than the rate for depressed mothers, at this rate, an additional 280,000 non-depressed American women each year would develop obsessions about harming their children. And not only the mothers of very young children suffer from these bad thoughts, Kay, a professional woman in her 40s, came to see me for relief of appalling thoughts about stabbing her teenage daughter as they slept. Kay described to me a night alone with her sleeping children. Her son and daughter were sleeping upstairs when the thought that she might stab them came into her mind. Kay's glance fixed on a long steak knife lying in the kitchen counter, and she felt her blood and she felt her blood run cold as she pictured herself plunging it deep into her innocent girl. She told me how she pictured her daughter's crimson blood staining dark red the white cotton sheets. She described picturing her daughter's eyes flying open, not comprehending, jarred from the confusion, half asleep to see her trusted mother betraying her. 
Despite her efforts to force the thoughts from her mind, Kay imagined her son in the next room, awakened now and paralyzed with fear by his sister's cries. Kay next imagined herself moving swiftly to his room, the long steak knife now raised directly over his chest, ready to plunge, and then... Finally, Kay succeeded in tearing her gaze from the steak knife on the kitchen counter. She told herself she mustn't allow herself to think these things, not while her husband was away, and she was alone with the children. Finally, Kay described to me the feeling of cold sweat on her brow and upper lip as she wiped her face with a trembling hand. After Kay finished describing this incident and the terror she commonly felt when alone with her teenage children, we discussed the history of her problem further. We agreed that it was odd she had these fears and bad thoughts now, when her children were older, but not before when her children were much younger and far more vulnerable. Kate told me that when her children were younger, she had divorced their father, her first husband, ending an unhappy marriage in which she had suffered emotional and physical abuse. Not until she had recently remarried and had a happy, secure relationship with a caring man did her obsessions about harming her children begin. Kay, an insightful woman, concluded, It seems as if when things are going well, for me, almost too well, that my mind has come up with something to ruin it. Something for me to worry about. As if this happiness can't go on, and I fear that I will do something awful to spoil it. Although we cannot know with certainty why Kay's obsessions began when her children were much older, their occurrence at a time when she finally felt her life was going wonderfully fits with what many other patients have told me. Over the years, I have seen many other people, like Kay, who only have had bad thoughts when things were going, in their words, too well. Grandmothers and aunt's bad thoughts. The imp of the perverse is not particular in whom he torments with thoughts about harming babies. Apparently, anyone who is around babies and has some responsibility for taking care of them is fair game. Ginny was an accomplished professional in her 50s. She had confided in her doctor about her bad thoughts about harming her grandchild, and the doctor had referred her to me for help. Although Ginny loved her granddaughter and loved nothing more than to babysit for her, doing so now kept her awake the night before, and obsessions about harming the baby had robbed her of any pleasure in the babysitting. In our first session, Ginny explained that any time she was alone babysitting for her grandchild, her obsessions would begin. If she was outside, pushing the baby in her stroller, the thought might come, what if I get the urge to push the stroller in front of the car and kill her? If she was walking over a bridge near her home, she would imagine throwing the baby over the side of the bridge to her death in the waters below. If she stayed inside with the baby to try to avoid these thoughts, she would instead be assaulted by she would instead be assaulted with worries about throwing the baby to her death out the window or suffocating her in her bed. The imp of the perverse is nothing if not resourceful. These thoughts were agonizing for Jeannie, who was psychologically sophisticated and had good insight into the cause for her obsessions. Jeannie told me that, like Dr. Wisner's patients, 
Her problem was not so much that she had an urge to kill her grandchildren, but rather a fear that she might somehow lose control of her senses. She put it this way, The fear is not that in my current state I would do these things, but that I might slip into a state where I could do it. Right now, when I am thinking about it, I know it won't happen. But it still festers, and it festers and lingers, and it keeps beating on you and beating on. It's like the villain, the enemy, the monster, the demon. It's the faceless devil. Ginny told her husband about the thoughts. She was relieved that his reaction was, he just couldn't even believe what he was hearing. He knew I'd never do these things. They were just bad thoughts. When I asked Ginny why she thought he has so much faith in her, she replied, because he sees me with people daily. He said he fell in love with me because I am kind. For example, he reminded me of a time when we were together in a cabin and I noticed a bee trapped behind the screen. And I told him I didn't want the bee to die. So we spent the first hour of our weekend together undoing the screen to free the bee. He asked me, does that sound like someone who would kill her grandchildren? He also reminded me that I'm soft and warm and very loving. And he would never worry about me doing these awful things I was thinking of. Needless to say, Ginny was relieved by her husband's reaction, since she had feared that he would think she was crazy. I will explain in a later chapter how Ginny was able to tame these bad thoughts so she can now be around her grandchildren with no obsessions at all. But that is getting ahead of the story. For now, I want to point out how it is not only mothers who have had bad thoughts about harming children. Ginny provided another example of this recently when she told me about a brief stay with her sister and her sister's baby. When to her surprise, her bad thoughts reoccurred. She told me in detail about what had happened when she was left alone and in her eyes, responsible for this infant boy she had met just once before. I was taking the baby out for a ride in the stroller and the top was up and he had a blanket and a hat on him while he was sleeping. Suddenly I became afraid that he couldn't breathe and then I remembered hearing that sudden infant death syndrome is often mistaken for someone who smothered the baby. And I immediately thought, what if something snaps in my mind and this becomes not just an obsession, but I actually smother him? The rest of the time I was with him, if his hat or blanket fell over his face slightly, I'd rush to put it back before he was smothered. I didn't have images of smothering him or urges to smother him. There was just that dastardly voice saying, what if you did that? Or wouldn't it be awful if you smothered him? But at the same intellectual level, I knew that I would never do it. I didn't tell my sister because she would have been horrified and she probably would not have let me around the baby. Believe it or not, when I got off the airplane back home, I kept waiting for someone to telephone me and tell me that the baby had been smothered. Ginny thought my metaphor for the imp of the perverse described her experience well. It also reminded her of two other bad thoughts that had troubled her. Recently, when she was ordering a cake for a baby shower, she had the urge to tell the baker to write on it, I hope you have an abnormal baby. When she used to change her grandchildren's diapers, she used to get the thought, I don't want to look at their sexual organs because what if something snaps in my mind and I sexually molest them? Once again, 
Thoughts such as these are calling cards of the imp of the perverse. They're not the homicidal thoughts of a dangerous woman, but rather the fear of doing the most inappropriate thing at the most inappropriate time. Although sexual obsessions about one's children, such as Ginny told me about, are less commonly reported than aggressive obsessions, I have seen a number of women who have had these bad thoughts. Marty, a woman in her mid-twenties, recently told me that she has to force herself to bathe her two-year-old son. She fears that seeing him naked in the bath might lead her to lose control and touch his genitals improperly. Like most other patients who have told me about fears of sexually abusing children, Marty also has fears about harming her son in other ways, such as suffocating with a pillowcase or stabbing him with a knife. Her sexual obsessions seem to be simply one other manifestation of the imp of the perverse. For a long time, no reports had been published of such sexual obsessions about one's own children, likely because such thoughts are even less rarely admitted to than violent obsessions. Recently, however, two English researchers described two new mothers suffering from these thoughts. Dr. Brockington and Filer of the Mother and Baby Unit at the Queen Elizabeth Psychiatric Hospital in Birmingham noted that since sexual obsessions are present in more than one quarter of all people suffering from obsessive compulsive disorder, we would expect at least some mothers to obsess about sexually abusing their children. They then described the only two cases of young mothers in the medical literature to date who experience obsessional thoughts of sexually abusing their own children. To demonstrate how bizarre sexual obsessions can become in some mothers, Dr. Brockington told me of a case he and his colleagues have seen of a pregnant woman obsessed with sexually abusing the unborn fetus. Like obsessions about killing one's baby, sufferers can recognize that these thoughts are ridiculous when they are calm and away from their child. Yet, when alone with their baby, which they usually try to avoid, they feel extreme fear that they might snap and act on these thoughts. Men's Bad Thoughts About Children Although the emphasis in this chapter has been upon women and their urges to harm or sexually abuse their children, I do not want to give the impression that men are immune from such thoughts. Far from it. I have seen several men, both with children and without, who are tormented by such thoughts. Several married men have told me that, although they have never admitted it to their wife, they have continued to delay having children because of their fears of having a newborn. Gary, a deeply religious man in his 30s, came to see me for help with tormenting obsessions about sexually abusing his young daughter or her friends. He described a recent episode of his bad thoughts this way. I was driving my girls Jane and her best friend, Kate, home, and the two seven-year-old girls were singing and joking and having a good time. It was great. But then the awful thoughts came into my head once again. How can you be sure that you don't really want to rape Katie? The thought disgusted me. I told myself, I don't want to molest her. But my thoughts asked, how can you be absolutely certain? And for that matter, how can you be sure you haven't already done it? This really freaked me out. I was only vaguely aware of the girls talking to me, asking why I was driving so slowly. But I was too upset to answer them. 
As I tried to remember not having raped Katie, the graphic image formed in my mind of having sexually molested her. I tried to force the image from my mind, but it continued, and I began to feel sick to my stomach. Then, the image turned into the one that I dread the most in the world, molesting my own daughter. Why me? Who is revolted by mention of any kind of sexual molestation? Surely I must be destined for hell. Finally, the thoughts passed, but I knew I would still be shaky for several days, keeping my distance from the little girl. After the aftershock of having these horrible thoughts slowly subsided. What if my wife ever found out? Gary, like most men with such thoughts, suffered in silence with them for years before seeking out help. When he spoke to me, he had still not told his wife the details of his obsessions, for fear that she would divorce him and prevent him from seeing his daughter again. It is impossible to estimate how many men suffer from obsessions of physically or sexually harming young children, since men are less likely to seek treatment for any psychological problem than are women. In many of these cases I have seen, the men came into treatment for alcohol or drug addictions they had developed in unsuccessful attempts to self-medicate their obsessions. Only much later, when they learned that their violent or sexual obsessions towards children are not uncommon or criminal, will they sometimes admit to these. In recent groups, I've seen a couple of men who abused alcohol to try to deaden their obsessions. One was a teacher who worried that he would, or that he already had, unknowingly sexually abused his male students. Another worried that he would stab young children he was left alone with. In a rare event, when this man told his wife about his obsessions, she was unable to accept them as obsessions and asked for a divorce telling him that she could never trust him to be around any children they might have. Happily, nearly all spouses are a lot more understanding of their partner's irrational obsessions. In the next chapter, we turn to the fundamental question of how you can be certain that the bad thoughts you are suffering from are simply irrational fears caused by the imp of the perverse. After all, anyone who watches the evening news or reads a daily newspaper knows that some people, mercifully very few, do kill or sexually attack children. If no one ever did these things, then there would be no reason to worry about having bad thoughts. As Sigmund Freud pointed out, there would be no need for thou shalt not taboos or commandments if mankind did not occasionally act on its primal instincts. Thankfully, as you will see, the two facts that one, you are upset by your bad thoughts, and two, you have never acted on them, are sure signs that you will never act on them.